Good morning, and let me invite you now to open your Bible to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. And today we will be looking at verses 6 through 11, focusing especially on verses 9 through 11, which have to do with the ascension of Jesus. So if you've found your place and are ready, hear now the word of the Lord as we read from Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we pray for insight, for illumination, for clarity. Uh, as we open your word, we pray that you will also open our hearts to behold from your word the truth. And we pray that as we hear the word proclaimed today, that it would evoke and provoke in us action that we will not merely hear it as a nice story or a nice sermon that will make us nice people. We pray that you, by your Spirit, will make it a powerful word to accomplish your purposes as a part of your plan for your kingdom now. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the ascension is something that I can't ever remember preaching an entire sermon on that single event. I went through the archives and I looked at messages I had preached and I have mentioned the ascension in passing, but yet in reality it is the very last act of Jesus Christ on this earth. His ascension to the right hand of the Father in heaven and it may be, for some, the most puzzling of all these watershed events. First, of course, it was puzzling to the disciples, the ones who originally witnessed it. It was perhaps the most visually unexpected of all the miracles uh, that they had seen firsthand. And we, as we just read in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, the apostles, as they heard, <clears throat> the message and witnessed Jesus going off into the sky, they stood staring at the heavens like a deer gazing into headlights. 
not understanding at all what was going on. They looked intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. We are to assume that these are angels, messengers of God. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way. And we're not quite sure at this moment exactly what the disciples were thinking as they stood there with their mouth agape, staring at the clouds. A friend of mine likes to say they were getting a sunburn on their tonsils. But the two angels had to give them a gentle rebuke. And here's what they said. Snap out of it. <laughs> Get a grip. He's left. He's coming back. But until then, we've got work to do. So get a move on. Obviously, the apostles were puzzled over the meaning of the ascension, even from the moment it happened. But the ascension can also be puzzling for us today in 2020. Um, and for us, the question is not so much what happened as why did it happen. And what difference does the ascension really make for the state of our souls and for the way that we live our lives? Certainly it makes sense that there was, and we see this in Scripture, a descending or a coming down in the incarnation, and there would be a going back in the ascension. But it is not immediately evident that the ascension makes a difference in our salvation and the way we live our lives day to day. Actually, after I finish this message, I hope you will come to the position that understanding the ascension, the nature of it, the meaning of it, and how it, the implications of it for how we live our lives will be clear to you. And you will see that it makes a huge difference. And so the ascension, when understood properly, becomes an irreplaceable, important resource that helps us live out our faith in this fallen world. And it is a resource that no other religion or philosophy of life holds out to us. So let's explore what the apostles eventually learned about the ascension, which they recorded in a number of places in the New Testament, also looking back at the Old Testament, and we will learn what the ascension is theologically, and second, what it means for us in a very practical way. And so what we have in the ascension is a visual marvel, a strange me metaphor, and an utter mystery. Yet, Jesus is taken away in such a manner as to leave it clear in the minds of those who were watching that he had been taken up to heaven where God is. Ascension marks the end of the resurrection appearances or the post-resurrection appearances and the beginning of Jesus' session at the right hand of the Father as the Father's vice regent in his humanity and his deity. Just as the ascension differentiated from the res is differentiated from the resurrection itself, so too is the ascension differentiated or distinguished from Christ's session at the right hand. And so the ascension happened as a historical event where he was taken up to heaven. 
Not the heavens, but heaven with a capital H. Heaven where God is. And so the session is what Jesus is doing now as he sits at God's right hand in glory until the day he returns to the earth. And so the ascension carries great significance, but discerning that significance is sometimes a little bit tricky. That's why you pay me the big bucks to do this. So <laughs> the session is what Jesus is doing now as he sits in God's right hand in glory. Uh, the most important thing here is not that Jesus went to a place rather than merely entered into some kind of heavenly state. True though that may be, Luke hardly narrates the Ascension story twice because he's rather keen on it to share uh, about the reality of heaven and what difference that makes in volume number two. Understand this, when Luke concludes volume one, his gospel, he concludes it with the Ascension. When he begins volume two, he begins with the Ascension. And so the ascension is a hinge in the mind of Luke as he writes both his gospel and the book of Acts. And so the ascension carries a lot of freight and a lot of uh, weight. And so I want to talk about in sort of rapid fire sequence some of the uh, implications of the significance of Jesus' ascension. What does the ascension mean? First, the ascension means that Jesus ascends to heaven so that he can send his Holy Spirit uh, to his followers. In the Gospel of John, Jesus taught at the Feast of Tabernacles and uh, that rivers of living water would flow from within those who believed in him. And John the evangelist informs us, by this he meant the Spirit, whom those who had believed in him were later to receive, up to that time the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. In Jesus' farewell discourse in John's Gospel, there is a strong emphasis on his departure so that the advocate, the paraclete, would come. The paraclete is the term John uses to describe the Holy Spirit, the one called alongside the advocate. Here's what is said in the upper room discourse. Just listen. I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. When the advocate comes, this is chapter 15, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he, that is the Spirit, will testify about me. And listen to this last one. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. That's in John 16. And so the ministry of the advocate will continue. And the witness of Jesus in the witness of the disciples, let me repeat that, the ministry of the advocate, the Holy Spirit, will continue the witness of Jesus in the witness of his disciples. In Luke 
Acts, there is a similar emphasis on Jesus' departure to heaven, resulting in his giving of the Spirit to his disciples. And so we see that in chapter 2, which is forthcoming on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit was poured out upon the people of God. And so Jesus, uh, through the Father, has promised them that they will be clothed with power from on high. And the purpose of such power is disclosed in the opening verses of Acts where Jesus actually tells his disciples, we've already read it, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. And so the disciples received an empowerment for mission through the Spirit's enabling. I think there's a, another reason why uh, Jesus is going away to the Father and pouring out his Spirit upon the church is profitable for us all. Understand that in his incarnation, while on earth, Jesus was limited by space and time. He could only be in one place at one time because of bodily limitations and finitude. And so, therefore, Jesus couldn't be everywhere. But by pouring out his Spirit upon the church, now the Spirit and presence of Christ is with every believer all the time. I've often heard people say, I wish I was alive when Jesus was alive so that I could have seen and witnessed what he did. But none of us could have ever been with him every single moment. But because of the Holy Spirit's indwelling, he is the Spirit of Christ. We experience His presence all of the time, and that is one of the great advantages of the New Covenant. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, uh, re regards the giving of the Spirit as equated with the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy, where God said through Joel, I will pour out my uh, Spirit on all people. And so, this visible and spectacular outpouring of the Holy Spirit really prove three things, and I'll name them really quick. Number one, the last days have arrived with the sending of the Holy Spirit in a qualitatively new way. We're not waiting for the last days. Just because we live in the 21st century doesn't mean we just started the last days. The last days began when the Spirit of God was poured out upon the church. The time for salvation has come. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And number three, Jesus in his earthly life was anointed, the anointed spirit bearer. And in his exalted state, Jesus is the spirit giver. And so exalted to the right hand of God, he has also received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. And he has poured out what Peter says in chapter 2 of Acts, what you now see and hear. And so it is as if Christology, eschatology, and pneumatology merge together in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The last days are here because the fresh winds of the Holy Spirit are blowing like never before. But there's another dimension to uh, the meaning and significance of the ascension. There's seven of them, so you better listen quick. Number two, after Jesus' ascension, there is an expectation for the worship of Jesus and the witness to, of Jesus to Jesus by the disciples. And so the ascension of Jesus really begins the emphasis and starting of a Trinitarian worship 
focused on the Lord Jesus and God the Father operating in the power of the Spirit. And so as Jesus is enthroned, he's worshipped as someone who has overcome death and transcends the heaven. The ascension meant that Jesus was not merely assumed to heaven like Enoch and Elijah, but also exalted and enthroned beside God and therefore worthy of the honors given to God. That is why immediately after the ascension, the disciples genuinely worshipped him. And why prayers and baptisms and healings were performed in his name. They were forms of devotion to Jesus. And so, in addition, the ascension also marks for us the commissioning of the disciples as witnesses for Christ. And so... They received the promises of the Spirit that when the Spirit is sent, Jesus says, He will testify about me because the disciples receive His Spirit. You also must testify. And so uh, we see as a result of the gift of the Holy Spirit in Christ's ascension that the church becomes a worshiping, witnessing community. Three. Number three, the ascension means that Christ is exalted to God's right hand and invested with divine authority. Now let me say something. Does this mean the incarnation is over? And the answer to that is no. Jesus took our humanity to the right hand of God the Father. There sits beside God in heaven at his throne a human being united to the second person of the Trinity, sitting at the right hand of God. And so it is not over. And so the ascension means that the God-man, the Lord Jesus, is exalted to God's right hand and is invested with divine authority. We could go to Psalm 110. Let me just read the initial verse. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Originally spoken to David, but David understood that it spoke to someone beyond him, a messianic figure who Jesus truly is now at the right hand of the Father. We could get far more into that, but for time's sake, we can also look at the testimony of Peter in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, and the writer to the Hebrews is that after Jesus' death and resurrection, he was seated beside God and therefore is invested with divine authority. Jesus is raised to reign with God. Jesus is taken into heaven to take control of the affairs of the universe. Jesus is elevated to heaven to be enthroned as God's ultimate vice regent, the God-man, the second Adam. The persons whom Christians worship and to whom they witness is the one the God of Israel has marked out as Lord of the universe. And he is thus the key agent in redemption. And so, when we grieve over the virus that has taken hold of our world, when we grieve and hurt for other people, and while we attempt to use every measure to avoid this disease, we also know, or this virus, we also know that sitting at the right hand of God is the God of the universe, the sovereign of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who bled and died for us. Therefore, uh, we are to walk under the reign of the Lord Jesus with the confession in our mouth that Jesus is Lord. Fourth, and I've already touched on this, the ascension demonstrates that God has placed a human being as sovereign of the universe. Jesus was the pre-existent Son of God. He was incarnated as a human being. When he was resurrected, he was still God incarnated as a human being, except now he has a glorified human body, and when he ascended into heaven, he did not cease to be human, Though he does remain the second person of the Trinity, Jesus ascended as a human being and remains in this glorified humanity for all of eternity. All of eternity. Therefore, the one enthroned beside God, as I said earlier, is a human being. He is a human person who is at the helm of the universe. The commission given to Adam in Genesis 1:28 demonstrates that humanity's first task was to rule over creation on the behalf of God. And the image of God means royally rule, to royally rule as God does. Psalm 8 picks up this theme when it says about human beings, you have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, in fact. For the author of Hebrews, Psalm 8 shows that Jesus is the human being, the imago Dei, par excellence, whom God crowns with glory and honor because he qualified himself for exaltation by his salvific death for others. And so the enthronement of Jesus constitutes the restoration task that God has always intended for humanity, to reign over a created world on the behalf of God. Five, this is number five out of seven, uh, significance of the ascension. Ascension's a big deal. You're going to believe me before I get through, I hope. Believers already share in the reign of Christ by virtue, virtue of their union with Christ. We are united with Jesus in his death, in his resurrection, and his exaltation. We find progressively revealed in Scripture the democratization of the messianic idea, which means God's people reign both under God's anointed king and with God's anointed king. And we find that first announced in Daniel 7, where enthronement of the one like a son of man beside God is interpreted as a symbolic image for the future moment when the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever, Jesus told his 12 disciples that when the Son of Man was enthroned in glory, they would sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so, Luke in his versions prefaced that with the promise, I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me. And so in the New Testament, reigning with Christ is still held out as an impending hope to be consummated in a future moment. So remember the nature of the kingdom and the nature of our experience of the reign of Christ is both already 
and not yet. It is now, it has implications for living now, but it anticipates a future in which God will bring all things together in one in Christ. I said this last week in preaching on the resurrection. Believers, in a sense, are already seated with Christ. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in heavenly realms. Since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Obviously, this already aspect of last days and teachings regarding the last times whereby believers can already count themselves as reigning with Christ. Now, an overemphasis on this can certainly lead to triumphalism. We are not on the throne yet, but our man is, our Messiah is, our Master is. And where He is, we shall also be one day. This should not lead us to triumphalistic self-assurance, nor to disdain for all other earthly authorities. Rather, reigning with Christ should cultivate in every heart a deep desire to live lives worthy of our royal calling. It should promote in all of us a sense of awe at the grace of God, which has turned rebellious sinners who raged against the kingdom into royal heirs of the glorious King. Here's the sixth implication for meaning or the sixth uh, significant point regarding the ascension. Jesus's work of intercession continues in his heavenly session. That is the priestly office of Christ expressed in the fact of his being the mediator between God and humanity continues. That mediation is demonstrated supremely in his atoning death, but not limited to it. The ascended Jesus is the mediator who gives us access to God, and he continues to make intercession for his people. Jesus has reconciled humanity to himself through his perfect obedience, his substitutionary death, and his victorious bodily resurrection. He has put us in a right relationship with God. He's brought us out of the exile of sin and back into the family of God's covenantal promises. When Jesus Christ died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, symbolizing the way to God was no longer restricted to the mediation of the Jerusalem priesthood and cultists, but was open to everyone in every place. The salvation mediated through Jesus is superior to the law because the law was put in effect through angels. That is what Galatians and Hebrews teaches us. But Jesus is a divine human mediator of a new covenant that is based on a better promise, a better sacrifice, a better priesthood. The exaltation of Jesus completes this work of mediation because the ascension of Jesus into heaven means the acceptance of those for whom he died and rose again. This is expressed beautifully in Hebrews. Listen to this passage. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. 
Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart, with full assurance of faith that brings, having our hearts sprinkled, cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Jesus has entered the heavenly sanctuary. He is our forerunner, and we have assurance that because he is there, we too will be there. We too will be accepted there. And so Jesus is both our confidence and our way of access. And Paul put it this way, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Because Jesus is the exalted Lord, we have a means to approach God, for our mediator is enthroned beside the Father. That is why it is ridiculous for us to look inside for some assurance of salvation or to look at what we've done as some kind of comfort and assurance of our salvation. But rather, look where Jesus is. Where he is, that's where we're going if we're trusting in him and him only. And so it grounds us with confidence. It grounds us with a shameless sense of security that God's door always stands open for us because we come in Jesus' name. Another aspect of this post-resurrection priestly work of Jesus is his intercession, and the high priestly prayer of John chapter 17 shows the beginning of Jesus' work of interceding for his disciples. He was already praying for his disciples even before he ascended. And the book of Romans and Hebrews tell us that this, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede. I can remember talking to people about coming to Christ when sharing the gospel with them. And all, almost all of them would say at some point, I, just, I, don't think I, can, I don't think I can stay with it. I don't think I can keep it up. I, I, I don't have any confidence that I'd be a good disciple of Jesus. And I said, well, good. <laughs> That's the first good thing you've got to know is that you don't save yourself. You are saved by Christ. And he continues to intercede for you. And this intercession is uh, achieved for us by virtue of Jesus' presence in the courtroom of heaven. His presence there proves that our rightful place belongs in the throne room of heaven. In his ascension, Jesus is the living guarantee of the believer's justification from Easter until the end of the world. On top of that, it's not just his presence in heaven, but his prayers in heaven that constitute his intercession. Jesus lives in the presence of God to petition him to act in our favor. That is why we are committed to praying to God, the Father, in the name of Jesus. Intercession is not that Jesus 
is constantly begging a reluctant father to help us, our Heavenly Father is already predisposed to provide good things for His creatures. The prayers of Jesus are part of the communion between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And so Jesus' petitions are part of the work that the triune God affected in the world. The prayers of the church are mediated through the Son in order to show God answers prayer because of the Son. And above all, in His ascension, Jesus' humanity is raised to the heights of heaven to present requests to God. And this provides assurance that God is for His people and will always hear them. And so the Bible goes incredibly beyond anything we could ask, hope, or dream in providing for us the absolute assurance that Jesus saves. I remember reading a sermon title to a passage in Hebrews 7.25 where it says he's able to save us to the uttermost. And the title of the sermon was, From the Guttermost to the Uttermost. That's how Jesus saves us. What a Savior we have. You see, most of us stop with the salvation Jesus provided for us at merely bearing our sin upon the cross, which is no small thing. But for every 500 sermons you've heard on the cross and every 100 sermons you've heard on the resurrection, how many have we heard on Jesus' session at the right hand? What He's presently doing daily for us now. And what that means for our uh, relationship with Him and our deep communion with Him, which I will talk about in a moment. But finally, this is number seven, and then we'll move to application. Jesus will return in the same manner he left, although it will be far more public. You know, Jesus went in the clouds. Now, Luke's not giving us a weather report. He's not saying when Jesus ascended, it was a cloudy day. Clouds in Scripture, as well as mountains in Scripture, have a lot to do with the presence of God, but clouds in particular represent what's called the Shekinah or the glory of God. That when Christ was ascended, he went up into the glory of God and was taken to the very presence of God. Uh, it's not so much a, a spatial ascension as it is a relational ascension where he, you know, I don't know where heaven is. I don't know how he got there. I don't think he went like a, uh, a rocket from Cape Canaveral and passed through uh, you know, the Earth's gravitational field and hit space and then went to the planets and then kept going past the sun, past all the galaxies, and ultimately to the Father. I just believe he stepped off into another dimension we can't see. Still having a body. But I'll tell you this. He's there. He's ascended into heaven and he's coming back. The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go to heaven. In the same way. That is, the same Jesus in the same way who mysteriously ascended into heaven in the same mysterious way will return to reign over the earth and consummate his kingdom and we will reign with him, those of us who have believed in him. And so this, his ascension is sort of the advance notice of the end, a preview of coming attractions. And so Ascension Day is the day we celebrate Christ 
moving to the right hand of the Father. But there's something more I wanted to say about the heart of God reflected to us in the ascension. And this comes from uh, Michael Reeves' book, but he's actually quoting, as I often do other people, he's quoting Thomas Goodwin. And he's talking about the heart of Christ in heaven toward sinners on earth. And if you've read his book, Rejoicing in Christ, which I could not recommend more, this is on page 75, and here's what he says. Few people have heard of Thomas Goodwin, especially today, but there was a time when he was considered one of the theological greats, even hailed as the greatest pulpit exegete of Paul that has ever lived. Born in a small village in Norfolk, United Kingdom, in 1600, he grew up to be president of Magdalen College, Oxford, and was one of the most beloved pastor preachers of his day, a contemporary of John Owen. His most remarkable and most popular work was the heart of Christ in heaven toward sinners on earth. And his aim in it was clear and simple. Goodwin wanted to show us through the lenses of Scripture that for all of Christ's heavenly majesty, seated upon the throne, he is not now aloof from believers or unconcerned. He is still the same man with the strongest affections for his people. In fact, if anything, his capacious heart beats more strongly than ever with tender love for them. Meaning we can approach the throne of grace with wonderful confidence, knowing that we have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, having been tempted in every way like us. In particular, Goodwin argues two things. Two things stir Christ's compassion. Listen to these. Number one, our afflictions. And we would expect that Christ's compassion would be stirred by our afflictions. But almost unbelievably, the second thing that stirs Christ's compassion is our sins. Our afflictions and our sins. Have exp having experienced on earth the utmost load of pain, rejection, and sorrow, Christ in heaven emphasizes with our sufferings more fully than the most loving friend could ever get close to. More, though, he actually has compassion on his people who are out of the way. That is sinning. Listen to what Goodwin says. Your very sins move him to pity more than anger. Yes, his pity is increased the more toward you, even as the heart of a father is to a child that has some loathsome disease. His hatred shall all fall, and that only upon the sin, to free you of it by its ruin and destruction. But his bowels, that is his heart of compassion, shall be more drawn out to you, and this as much when you lie under sin as any other affliction. Therefore, fear not what shall separate us from Christ's love. His point is this. Those who are in Christ have a new identity. We are defined by Christ and not by our sin. Sin is a believer's sickness, a sickness that a believer hates, for which, but which draws out Christ's compassion. 
In glory, Jesus' first reaction when you sin is pity. When we would run from Him in guilt, He would run to us in grace. It makes all the difference when your heart feels cold and dead. Right then you can know that your weary joylessness fills Him with compassion. I have to tell you that is not how I think most of the time. I think that's biblically accurate, but it's not how I think. The focus is upon Christ, but Goodwin, of course, was ardently Trinitarian and could not abide the thought of his readers imagining a compassionate Christ appeasing a heartless father. No, he said, Christ adds not one drop of love to God's heart. Not one drop. All Christ's tenderness comes in the fact that from the Spirit who stirs him with the very love of the Father, the heart of Christ in heaven is the express image of of the heart of his father. What Goodwin realized as a pastor was that this loving compassion is exactly what we need, is exactly what will draw us back to Christ from our sins. In our guilt, we would never want to face up to some cold and pitiless God, but the tender kindness of Christ woos us, as it were. The beauty of Christ's heart in heaven wins our heart. That's what a groom does for a bride. That certainly was the case for Goodwin in himself, who said on his deathbed, Christ cannot love me better than he does. And I think I cannot love Christ better than I do. You think there's no benefit to the ascension of Jesus at the right hand of the Father for living our Christian life? Who among us does not feel like we have sinned even high-handedly against Him? How we must have provoked Him and irked Him and made Him sick of us and disgusted with us. Is there one of us who can say we do not have that feeling and, and the devil comes alongside and reminds us constantly of how we have failed in the face of such love? But we need to hear the Spirit Point us not to us and our heart, but point us to Christ whose heart is full for us and of us and in us. And so the ascension provides us with something I find myself often doing. My advocate, my advocate is on high. He is on high at the right hand of the Father. Now, the final thing that I want to talk about before we go is by saying that Jesus is our priest. He is our advocate. He is our intercessor. These extend the mysterious but extremely important metaphor of Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father. Whoever is at the right hand of the throne has power to execute the royal will. But that poor person also has, as it were, the royal ear. And so, of course, if a person or a matter comes up before the judgment seat of the throne, there is no stronger advocate possible than the one who is at the right hand. Remember that if you are to appear in court, everything depends on your defense lawyer. That is your advocate. If your advocate is brilliant, you appear brilliant. If he wins his argument, you win your case. If your advocate knows the law and is highly respected by the court, your case is secure. 
So when the Bible says that Jesus stands as our advocate and representative before the throne of the universe, it is a way to say that he ascended to the right hand, not just levitated. And it doesn't matter who you have been or what you have done. It doesn't matter how flawed and foolish we are. When the eyes of God the Father look at us, they see the ascended Jesus. And when they listen to us, they hear him. And when God looks and listens to you, he sees the heart's infinite beauty. And in the book of Acts, we are told when Stephen, the preacher, who was put on trial for his life on trumped-up charges, as they were about to execute him by stoning him, Stephen was suddenly given a vision. And what did Stephen say? He said, look, I see heaven open." And the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. He sees Jesus not sitting at the right hand, but standing on His behalf, advocating for Him. It is said, according to the book of Acts, that Stephen had the face of an angel the whole time. Do you know why? He understood in the last moment of his life that the one who died for him was now ascended the one who represented him before the judgment seat of the universe. He saw how vital that was to him, which meant he did not need to care what anybody else said about him. The verdicts of earthly courts didn't matter when he knew how he was regarded by the heavenly one and the only one who mattered and the only verdict that would last forever. It didn't matter whether his powerful enemies were calling him Uh, him defiled when in God's eyes he was pure here's a man so truly self-actualized to use a phrase of pop psychology that he can forgive people (laughs) who are about to execute him why because he understood the meaning of the ascension do you if you believe in him he ever lives to intercede for you do you have that kind of communion and rich fellowship with the ascended christ that the bible says is available for you do you have that because do you have the peace of mind that comes from knowing your savior controls all things for you at the right hand of the Father? Do you have the unseekable joy and self-image that comes from understanding Christ's intercession at the right hand of God? Jesus Christ went to the right hand of the throne to be our royal prophet, royal king, and royal priest. He is our intimate, our leader, our intercessor on a cosmic scale. Do you know him in that way? If you want to live with, die with the same kind of power Stephen had, learn to draw daily and directly from the doctrine of the ascension. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful truth that Jesus is full of grace and truth, that he is now the enthroned, exalted, ascended, Savior, who while seated because he has finished his work on earth, is also standing actively engaged with his church and with his people as he has poured out his spirit upon us, as he controls the affairs of the world and of men and women and boys and girls.
We pray that we would be drawn ever closer to him. And we thank you for the way he loves us. The way your heart, triune God, is so merciful and sweet and accepting toward those of us who fail and wander away and rebel. We thank you for your tender mercies. It makes us want to love you more. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.